You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. It's now 22 minutes to uh, 3 o'clock and we join uh, the vaccinated, newly vaccinated naked scientist. Hello, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. How are you doing? Very good. Thank you. How are you feeling? Yeah, yeah, I'm OK. Um, I spoke to a number of the other junior doctors at our hospital because that they were also uh, vaccinated in the last week or two mm-hmm. at our hospital. And so I was picking their brains, saying what were their experiences? Mixed bag, really. A number of them said didn't even notice. A number of them said, cough, I felt a little bit rough in the day or so afterwards mm-hmm. with uh, the, the sorts of symptoms you expect to have when you have some kinds of vaccines. People were getting mild sort of cold-like symptoms, feeling a bit feverish in some cases, headaches and so on. I went through the system. Uh, I didn't have anything. Uh, no, no problems. Oh. Slightly, slightly achy arm. Obviously, you expect that. But um, no, no, no side effects to speak of. And um, my my wife is she's a GP, and she was actually delivering and doing the vaccination over the weekend on a, a whole raft of people. And she also got vaccinated at roughly the same time. And and she said felt a little bit tired, but on the whole, she's been pretty well. So it's interesting, isn't it? Some people are saying that they are having. A, a reaction and other people are saying they're not and one has to wonder whether it's just that some people catch a cold or something and that gives them some other equivalent reaction yeah. at the same time as they've had their vaccine and they're saying oh it must be the vaccine and, and it isn't but um no I, i've i've sort of sailed through so hopefully i'm now busy making an immune response yes. should be and um we'll know um in, in a while won't we but um it, it takes about two or three weeks before the immune response begins to kick in meaningfully if you look at the graphs the published graphs of of how well people are protected then the unvaccinated and the vaccine crowd are exactly the same line on the graph for about two weeks and then they begin to diverge Mm. and then by three weeks you've made a, a reasonable immune response to that first dose so this has been part and parcel of the uk government's decision actually to defer the second booster dose to 12 weeks instead of three or four weeks the reason being that if you get a reasonable degree of protection from that first dose it actually makes sense statistically to get as many people vaccinated while you've got really high levels of the virus circulating in society and then come back and mop up with the second dose the booster a bit later on and there are various trials going on to test the suitability of that approach because a number of people have objected Pfizer among them saying look we don't have clinical data to support this approach this is you know departing from the guidelines this Mm -hmm. is sort of vaccine off-piste but actually there are some trials going on and the initial data looks like it's it's going to be fine but we're all hoping it is going to be fine to to have taken this choice and uh, and if having done that and tested it and proved it works then I think a number of other countries will probably follow the UK's lead uh, off-piste to, to take this different approach. So that means having a greater number of people have a certain level of protection than a fewer number of people having the highest level of protection. Exactly. And if you look at statistically how many that means that you can protect overall, there is an advantage to widening your envelope of people you vaccinate in the short term yeah. with uh, further follow-up protection in the long term. They're not saying they're not going to come back and revaccinate the rest of us and give us those boosters, but we'll defer them for a bit longer, which means there's more vaccine available right at the start while we've got high levels of virus circulating. And uh, also we've got um, you know, high levels of people who are potentially susceptible to the infection. So it does make sense at this stage of the pandemic with a, with a supply uh, limited of vaccine to 
take this approach. So I, I think I, I approve and agree, but it, it'll be even better when we've got the data that shows that actually that was a, a safe approach to have taken as well. But uh, certainly interesting, I mean, the UK is going at a, a cracking pace. I mean, we've got well over five plus million people have been vaccinated in a very short space oh. of time, and their target is 15 million people by the middle of February. It looks like they're on target to do that. And we're hoping, of course, that South Africa is going to kick off its vaccine mm. program and, and get uh, as many people protected as, as fast as possible. Yeah, we're due to start at the end of uh, the month. So we wait to see lots of questions about that planned rollout, where the vaccinations will be taking place and whether or not we've got enough skill and capacity because it's not just anyone who can give the jab. So uh, it, we need uh, people with the right training to be able to administer it at the right sites. So that's really the big national debate that's going on at the moment. Wow, look at you. Yeah, you belong to a, a class of people who <laughs> <laughs> yeah. have the well, One of my, one of my good friends, rest. also a broadcaster, said, um, well, I can't, you can't come on my program anymore, Chris, because you're, you're a cut above now, you're not allowed on my program. So hopefully you'll still let me on your program. Because obviously you're, you're in a different kettle of fish entirely because you could say, well, I'm not having you on your program because you haven't had COVID, so you haven't had the real deal, Chris. You haven't, you haven't lived this. Yes, so. yes. <laughs> Well, let's go to the lines. Okay? Have, you, have you continued to improve? Is everything settling down for you? Yes, everything has settled down. I must contend, like, I think when I hear people's stories, I'm convinced that I had it in a mild fashion. Um, and have I know people who say sometimes they still feel the fatigue or the tightness of the chest and so on. But I'm having good days. There was a time when it was more good days good. Than, than bad as it was working its way out. Uh, but now I feel like back 100% back to normal back to the way that's I was good. before. That's good. Yeah. I mean, the good news is um, a, a colleague of mine who's actually following up big groups of people who have had coronavirus infections of, of both mild form, severe form, they are finding that there are immune changes in people that are there for the short term mm. and appear to explain why people have got these hangover symptoms that go on for weeks after the infection. But they're beginning to see evidence that they do go back to normal. So that's really, really encouraging. So while there are people who are still downstream of having had coronavirus feeling not terribly well, yeah. the good news is that this does appear to go away, and at least in a, a significant proportion of people. So we're waiting for the obvious, the full-on data on this at the moment, but that was what they, they whispered to me, that it looks like their results are showing. So that's really encouraging. So even, even if people are feeling rough still, you know, stay with it, keep the faith, because it look, does look like it's going to go away for you. Mm. Oh, that's very encouraging. So let's get to the lines. We've got such a variety of questions coming your way, Chris. We start with Alistair in Randburg. Hello, Alistair. Hi, Zania and Dr. Chris. Uh, butterflies Hi, in your stomach. Hi there. Butterflies in your stomach. Are they caused by a mental or a physical reaction? I read it's about facing a fear or running away from it. I used to play football and would have these awful butterflies right up to the kickoff. But once the game started, they would disappear. So would that be then facing your fear? However, I've also had butterflies waiting to meet or seeing a girl I liked or even loved. Mm -hmm. What's that got to do with fear? Are there different types of butterflies? Anyway, by the way, regarding <laughs> that lady with a paper problem on last week's show. Yes, eating of paper, I'm print paper. Yeah, I'm happy to report she's turned a new leaf, and we're now both using <laughs> the same same hymn sheet. <laughs> uh, I, I listened to the answer on the radio. Too. Thank you. Beautifully crafted. Giving questions. me a run for my money, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. 
The answer to this is that uh, it's both a physical and a mental thing because you need the mental aspect of it in order to gauge up and size up the situation and realize there's a threat or something to make you feel nervous and then the physical is actually your body's response and there's a number of things going on. When we get nervous or worried or very excited about things, you mentioned dating a girl that makes butterflies in your tummy, that can happen too. That excitement is associated with a big surge in activity in a branch of your nervous system, the autonomic nervous system, which is beyond your, your conscious control, yes. which is called the sympathetic nervous system. And the sympathetic nervous system releases into your bloodstream via your adrenal glands very large amounts of adrenaline. It also activates various other end organs like your heart and your lungs and your eyes and changes the way that they behave. Your heart beats much faster and harder. Your breathing deepens and becomes faster. Your blood pressure changes and it disengages the drive via the other branch of your autonomic nervous system, the parasympathetic system, the drive into your intestines. So when you are excited or frightened, your flight or fight reaction kicks in. In other words, you're going to have to fight somebody or you're going to have to run off and the body is prepared accordingly. What you don't want to be doing when you're trying to fight somebody or to run off is digesting your dinner because your guts are consuming vast amounts of blood resources that could be being pumped to muscles to make them work harder and make you run away. So what the body does is to engage all those other circuits that beef you up and pep you up and uh, make you feel a bit excited and uh, nervous and shaky and ready for action. And it also, by disengaging your guts, readies you for action by taking away a burden on your resources. And when it disengages your guts, it causes all the muscles there to relax. And as your stomach begins to relax and sink, you get that sinking feeling in your tummy or that twitching sensation because the muscles relax and everything begins to sag a bit inside. And that's part of it. So part of the twitchiness is the adrenaline. And part of it is your muscles relaxing in your tummy and you put all those things together and that's the butterflies in your stomach sensation of uh, feeling very nervous about something and in anticipation of having to do something that you find a bit scary. Yeah. So when he steps on the pitch, is he using the adrenaline then? So it's Absolutely. Yeah. Because if you imagine, I mean, when we play a friendly sporting game, that's uh, we, we know there are rules and we know, we, we know that uh, they're not going to kill us. But wind the clock back a few hundred years, that could be two armies lining up against each other. Mm. And uh, it's exactly the same emotions. People care very deeply about this. They're very excited. They want to win. They want to make sure they come out on top. And you engage your flight or fight reaction to do that. Sympathetic nervous system, lots of adrenaline, prickly skin, heart beating very hard, frightened sensation or excited, keyed up sensation, sinking feeling in your tummy or butterflies in your tummy as you turn off all your intestinal, intestinal organ yeah. um, or your intestines. There we go. Alistair, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's Alistair in Randburg. And Dennis, you're in Fowies. Hello. Hi, Dennis. Oh, yes. Thank you. Yes. My question is, uh, as the universe continues to expand, mm. to where does Hello, Dennis. it expand to? Afternoon. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I knew that yeah, was coming. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. The question yeah. is, as the universe continues to expand, to where yeah. does it expand to, given that at the time of the Big Bang, there was no space, there was no time. And is there no risk that as it expands, vacuum will be created in space, which the laws of physics do not allow, unless it's on the radio? Hmm.
Thank you so much. Thank you, Dennis. Dennis, this is the question that a physicist cannot give you an answer to, but they've got a cheaty get-out clause. And oh. I'm not trying to be insulting to physicists. Um, I mean, it, 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 it's a fact what they're saying, and that is that um, the universe is everything, and therefore the universe is just getting bigger. It's not expanding into anything because the universe is everything already. But we just don't know uh, how the universe can exist, exist as something very, very tiny at the time of the Big Bang and then inflate, get much bigger, and as far as we know, continue to get much bigger. The evidence we have at the moment is that the universe is continuing to expand and the older it gets, the faster it grows. And this is because of a concept called dark energy, which is as the universe creates more of itself, it creates more dark energy and that dark energy is producing the pressure or the force which is driving the universe to accelerate even faster. So the more dark energy you make, the more universe you make and the more universe you make, the more dark energy you have, so the faster the universe grows. And we don't know what the end point for that could be. It could continue to expand infinitely into the future and everything will become eventually so spread out and so distant that the universe is actually going faster than the light can travel between bodies. So the universe is effectively dark and distant. We can't see anything. Uh, also, there will be no more stars because they'll have run out of fuel. So everything just becomes cold and dark and very spread out in the uh -oh. future. And I or, hear the moon is we, we moving away as a result. So the well, the moon, moon, is, the moon is moving away, but yes. that's a slightly different phenomenon. And that's because oh. the Earth is spinning. And the spin of the Earth inside the orbit of the moon means that we are effectively giving some energy from the Earth to the moon because oh. the spin of the Earth imparts to the water that the moon is attracting as a bulge on the surface mm. some of our momentum. So the moon is being sped up a bit by the Earth. So we give some of our kinetic energy to the moon. This means the moon moves to a slightly farther orbit and it's moving away at about two centimetres per year. That's not the same as the universe itself expanding, uh. which is distances on a massive scale getting bigger because there's physically more space between them. On the near cosmic scale, you know, between our two planets, that, that isn't the case because gravity is much more powerful. But on the gr grand massive macro scale of the universe, you are making physically more space, which means the distance between galaxies is on average increasing and the universe is going towards this state of being very, very spread out. And the longer you give it, the faster it does that. What we don't know is what the really long-term future holds. Is that going to slow down again? Is some other, so uh, as yet, undiscovered physics? Because we, we don't know what dark energy is, for example, but is there in the future some undiscovered physics that means the universe will reach a turning point and then it will begin to shrink again? And as it shrinks again, will it then collapse in and, and respawn another Big Bang? At the moment, we just don't know what the, the long-term future of the universe is. But it's a long way off, so uh, we've got billions of years to think about that yet. <laughs> billions. Let's go to Jane in River Club, then we'll come to voice notes and more of your calls. Hello, Jane. Good afternoon, Azania and Chris. Hi. Hi, Chris, Jane. this is not a hugely intellectual question, but I want to know, I was down at the sea. Okay, we have a house and you can hear the sea the whole time. We had some friends staying with us. I watched a TV show, and it's got a lot of handheld camera, which, because my eyes are bad, I get very nauseous. So I made an observation to my friend. I said to her, I've just watched a TV show, and I'm so nauseous, and I find I start to lisp. And she oh. said to me, isn't that weird? Because they also have a house down at the sea, but a few sort of coastal resorts down. And she said... When she stands in a certain part of her kitchen and she can also hear the sea, she lisps as well. 
And she said she thinks it's to do with the atmosphere. So it was not because we'd been drinking a lot of anything. It was very early in the morning that I thought this. But I just wanted to know if it's true, because I do find there are times like that when I do start to lisp, lisp and I haven't been drinking. Oh, well, uh, the part of this could be the way in which you're hearing yourself, because remember that the sound that we hear of ourselves isn't really what we sound like. What we really sound like is when you listen back to a recording of yourself, for instance, from someone's phone or your own phone. And the reason we sound different to ourselves is because when we make sounds, we're basically making vibrations in our throat and our mouths, and those vibrations are then transmitted to the air around us. And some of those vibrations go out through the air and then back into your ears. But a lot of the vibrations have made your skull bones vibrate and are there transmitted directly into your hearing organ, the cochlea, in the inner ear. So we get a combination of our own head vibrating and the vibrations of the room around us as to what we hear of ourselves. And so we always feel that we, we sound one way and we're surprised when we hear what we really sound like. And as one person put it to me once, the best you can ever hope for is to learn to tolerate the sound of your own voice because we all hate hearing ourselves back. But what it could be is if you're then subject to other sounds coming in, that uh, in fact it could be masking or affecting your perception of one element or one component of the sound of yourself, the bit coming in through the air, and that will make your voice sound a bit different because some frequencies will be more affected than others and therefore your perception of what you sound like will change. It will make you feel as though you must be lisping, but in fact you're not. It's the way you're actually hearing yourself. <laughs> now, why that's bound up with the sound of the sea? Well, perhaps it's to do with the, the frequency of the sea sounds that you're referring to. And I also wonder, you, you mentioned a friend who also said they have this sort of phenomenon. Mm. It's not just the being near the sea that can do this if you have a certain space in in a place or a house you can create sounds or, or amplify certain sounds specifically in that space because certain dimensions will because of the wavelengths of the sounds we're talking about they will resonate more in that space and become amplified in that particular environment than other sounds and therefore you will find that certain sounds sound louder certain sounds will be drowned out by that environment and as a result that could affect your perception of your speech as well making you think you're talking a certain way when in fact you're not so it could be that that is what is going on under these circumstances mm, lovely uh thank you so much jane uh, one that i'm also curious to observe after she made this she, she described the phenomena let's go to the voice notes next hey good afternoon um the question i have for the naked scientist how come is it that some people just seem to not age at all, physically? Look at somebody like Pharrell Williams, the big example. He has not aged since he was a teenager. So is it something in the genes or what actually happens? Thank you. <laughs> I'm not sure if you're familiar well, with Pharrell, Chris, but, uh, you know, it's one of those things. People just tend to feel that the man still looks the same. The biggest aging factor on all of us is the sun and our lifestyle, what we eat, and if we smoke. If you don't smoke, that's the best thing you can do. And also having black skin is an amazing advantage in the aging process because being able to blunt the effects of the sun is very, very powerful indeed. Photo-aging, where ultraviolet rays in sunscreen, in, in sunshine, hit your skin. They degrade certain components of the connective tissue in your skin, especially the elastic fibers in skin, making skin more wrinkly and much less supple. 
this is strongly attenuated by the melanin in black skin. And so black people tend to age much better in sunnier climates than white people. So number one is the aging effect is the sun mm-hmm. and the skin color. And number two is don't smoke whatever your color, because even if you've got black skin and can protect yourself from the sun, the aging effect of smoking and the various components in cigarette smoke will strongly also affect the elasticity of skin and make your skin look much older. So if you want to have the perfect aging skin, one, have darker skin, two, don't get too much sunshine, whatever your skin hue, number three, definitely do not smoke ever, and number four, have the best uh, diet that you can and also get enough sleep, and all those things will give you uh, the the best, most pristine visage that you can expect throughout (laughs) your life. Wonderful. Wonderful. That's the key. That's the key to uh, not looking your age. Thanks for that question there. Um, so, Chris, you had your vaccination to get this past weekend and throughout the week I've been trying to see if my dog and I, well, whether or not we will precipitate, uh, well, I will precipitate a yawn in her. And I haven't m- had much success. She just doesn't <laughs> want to keep eye contact with me long enough because, you know, I get her attention and then I try and bring on a yawn. Um yeah, even under those sort of uh, manipulated conditions, it hasn't worked. But I'll continue but to But have try. you caught one from the dog? Have you caught a contagious yawn from your dog? So when the dog goes, do you, do you feel the inclination? I bet you do. I probably do. That's the one I'm going to start monitoring this week. That's then. the I'll one for this week. Yeah. Thank you so much, Chris. Have a great week. Take care. Bye, Aza. Bye-bye. That's the, the Naked Scientist, uh, Dr. Chris May.